0: Our scripture reading this morning is from John 5, 1 through 16, if you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there. Who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going another steps down before me, Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord.
1: For the God. And uh, welcome to the shiny campus. Uh, we're glad you're here, and those who are joining us online, uh, welcome. I uh, hope you're doing really, really well. Recently, my bride, Liz, and I—I I call her my bride. Uh, we've been married 40 years this May, which is uh, awesome. She's a long suffering woman, as I often say. Uh, but we had the opportunity to join one of our global ministry partners in a conference lately. And uh, it's a ministry partner called Elam that uh, addresses the Persian region of the world, uh, that very persecuted church, primarily in the nation of Iran. And when you are with the persecuted church, when you are praying with them and next to people like Farshid Fatah, who spent significant time being tortured and in solitary confinement in Ebian Prison, the famous prison of Tehran, it it really takes you by surprise. It is humbling, it's inspiring. But it's also, my friends, very heart-moving in a sense of reminding us throughout the world the most evil things that occur often on this planet are motivated by misguided religious zeal and devotion. And under the banner of devotion to a deity or religious system, religiously blinded people do the most unimaginable things to other image bearers of God. It was the brilliant 17th century French philosopher, physicist, and Christian Blaise Pascal who said it well as he looked across the terrain of time and history. He said, people never do evil so willingly than in the name of God. It's also, of course, tragically true when you look past through history and the present day, that people do great evil, don't they? Not only because of religious zeal, but because of atheistic ideologies. But our biblical text this morning, we are confronted with the great peril of misguided religious devotion. So what does misguided religious devotion look like, and why is it so perilous to your life, to my life, and to the world? If you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of John, the Gospel writer, New Testament, chapter 5. Now as a church family across our campuses and our city, we are exploring what has to be one of the greatest masterpieces ever written in human history, the New Testament book of the Gospel of John. Maybe you know this. But the Gospel of John has been translated in more languages on earth than any other book. Perhaps it is read, hadn't been read by more humans than any other book, most likely, almost certainly. So when we come to this text, we have a sense of awe about this religious and literary masterpiece. It truly is in a league of its own. And here, as we come into it, we understand that John gives us his explicit purpose of why he writes this gospel letter. This is very unusual if you have a familiarity with the New Testament writers. Most of the time, the purpose, literary purpose, is implicitly woven in the text. But here, John is so convinced of the importance of his text that he gives us the explicit purpose later in chapter 20. So I want to keep that in front of us throughout this series and throughout this message. What is John's literary purpose? What is he up to? In John chapter 20, he says it very specifically. Let me quote it for you. He says, I'm writing this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that means Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's purpose is that we may embrace a true transforming life, life life-giving faith in Jesus. Now to to accomplish this throughout the whole book, John will frequently employ a literary uh, vehicle called contrast. He will continually contrast true faith with faulty faith, okay? And we've already seen this. If you're in a part of our series, we've seen this literary structure. We see this in Jesus' conversation with a religious rabbi named Nicodemus so far, a Samaritan woman, and last week with a government royal official, okay? So that sets the context. You still with me? So now as we come to chapter five, we once again see spotlighted The peril of a misguided faith. It's on full display. And this display has two nuances to it. That sense that religious benefits and religious rules can become more important than a relationship with God. So keep that in mind. Now as we enter this text, notice how it is structured. John presents two narrative frames, literary frames. The first is a remarkable story we're going to explore in verses 1 through 9. And then on the heels of that, he brings in frame two, which is the focus of the text. And that is two revealing responses in verses 10 through 16. Okay, so this is where we are. This is where we're going. Jump in with me if you would. John begins his story in this remarkable story that was just read. And the picture in the first century, if you put on your sandals and walk back 2,000 years into the cobblestone streets of Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples, including John, who's most likely right by his side, are walking together in the old city of Jerusalem. During a Jewish feast, most likely, we're not certain, of Passover. Now imagine with me this city. It is bustling with people. Think of an anthill with ants all over it, right? Just people everywhere. Yet, isn't it surprising that one person stands out who is surprising himself? John doesn't tell us his name. But he's among a group of people Who suffered from different physical maladies and illnesses that are gathered together. And it's important to understand where they're gathered. It's a beautiful place. Uh, It is named, and John wants us to know the naming because it's significant in a sense. It is in English Beseda, or in Hebrew or Aramaic, Beseda, and it means the house of mercy or the house of outpouring. Okay? Now, John's point here, if you'll notice, if you're following along or listening, John tells us this guy, this unnamed guy, has been an invalid for 38 years. This is very important to his story. Again, Bethsaida was the place where he had hung out perhaps all his life, or at least most of his life. John wants to grasp something really important. This guy is a fixture in the old city. For Jesus and John, we know from other gospel writers, right, that this is not the first time they've been in Jerusalem. Important to Remember. And we can be very confident that they had encountered this guy before. Uh, Jerusalem, in the ancient city, first century, first temple, uh, second temple period, is a very small space. Many years ago, my bride and I studied there, lived there, in a graduate program in the old city. It's not a large place, okay? It's built around different gates. So it's very important to understand that this is a heavily trafficked area, and if you were in Jerusalem, you saw this guy, Okay? He was a fixture. We also know this because of the length of his physical suffering is 38 years. And John is tipping his literary hat for the first century reader that this means almost certainly that they've had previous conversations with him. Okay. The main point to grasp is that if you're in Jerusalem, the old city, you encountered this guy. And when I read this story, I think of uh, a particular time I spent at the University of Kansas. If you're a Jayhawk fan, you're pretty happy today. Um, But I remember I was serving there in a parachurch ministry for two years. And if you were on campus at KU, you knew about a fixture on this campus. He was affectionately called the Tan Man, the Tan Man. And I never recall hearing his name, but he was a fixture. He was called Tan Man because even in cold days, he had his shirt off. He was on what was called Wesco Beach. There's no sand beach, but it was the middle place where students hung out, right? The idea is that every day you saw him, whether you'd been on campus the first time or a hundred times, he was a fixture on campus, I think, for about a decade and a half. I see some nods there who are KU fans. But this is the idea John presents to us. If The lame man in Jerusalem was like this tan man, okay, at KU. Everybody knew about him. And John describes Jesus' encounter now with the lame man in verse 6, which is a very important verse. Follow along, if you will. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Hmm. Now, when you stop to think about it, Jesus' question is really intriguing, isn't it? I mean, this guy has been an invalid for 38 years. Why would you ask him that very obvious question? And why does John emphasize this so strongly in the narrative? Of course this layman wants to be well, right? He wants his lifeless limbs to be healed. So what's going on here? Well, this is where... Across time and culture and translation and language, we miss some nuance the first century readers would have heard. So let me unpack that just a little bit. In the original language, this word healed, uh, can be, but is very seldom used to describe just physical healing. There are other Greek words for that. So something is going on here. I think John's word choice, friends, is suggesting that Jesus is thinking more than just this guy's physical needs or physical well-being. Jesus is using this language to describe comprehensive well-being of body, soul, and spirit that only Jesus can heal. Uh, Other translations of this text actually bring this out better, I think. Okay? So for example, NIV, CSB, these translations put Jesus' question better. Do you want to get well? And I have to say, I don't think I've said this very many times in many years of teaching, that actually the old King James Version actually gets this better, in my opinion. It reads, do you want to be made whole? Whole. That's what Jesus is getting at. I think that's the best translation. So hearing Jesus question, you'll notice in the story, the lame man is hearing one simple pitch, one dimension of his brokenness, his physical need. So he quickly informs Rabbi Jesus of his plight, right? And he builds on the idea of this pool having these sort of supernatural qualities that he can't get in in time to be healed. Now to us in the 21st century, right? You're going, that's a bit out there, isn't it? It sounds rather superstitious. It sounds a lot like a religious charlatan in our time who offered desperate people false hope, right? built on sensational claims or certain kinds of miracle properties. Fascinating that Rabbi Jesus, in the text, seems to completely ignore this, this supposed healing properties of the pool. Rather, he simply says to this guy, can you imagine, who has not stood in 38 years, get up, take up your mat or bedroll and walk. And can you imagine what this guy must have felt like His lifeless limbs suddenly become alive. He felt the surging strength in his legs. Perhaps he had never walked. We don't know. And the exhilaration of being able to stand and walk was overwhelming. The one who has not walked for 38 years may never have experienced the joy of walking. He now grabs his bedroll mat, puts it on his shoulder, and walks away. Now, if you follow the gospel writer John, he highlights certain signs. There's actually seven that frame the gospel. Fascinating, he doesn't focus on the sign. Do you see that? It's also surprising that Jesus doesn't dwell on this healing more, or John's narrative. John's literary spotlight moves. And you'll notice the shining bright light of his literary focus is not the supernatural healing, it's the response to it. And here's the second literary frame. Remember, John is a brilliant literary writer. So he focuses on two revealing responses that emerge from this healing. In verses 10 through 16, we see these two responses, friends, and they both reveal the peril of misguided faith, faulty faith. So first, if you'll join me, let's look at the response of the healed man. How did the healed man respond? Well, in verse 9, John tells us he simply picks up his bedroll, like a mat, and he walks away. Now, when you read Scripture, enter into it properly in imagination and ask not only what is there, but what is not there. Okay. There's no indication he wants to get to know the one who healed him. Doesn't that shock you? It shocks me. And Jesus seems to have sort of drifted away quietly into the crowd. But wouldn't you think, if you were the healed guy, You'd chase after Jesus. You'd go after him. But in verse 14, we are told shockingly, it is Jesus is the one who seeks this guy out later in the temple. And interesting, in verse 14, he says this phrase, or this uh, sentence that has been misinterpreted and misapplied tons. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, I pulled out of context. This is often misapplied. It's sort of a causality of his sin created this physical illness. That's not the main point at all. He's encouraged him to live a god honoring whole life Not only Jesus the Messiah can bring him. But it doesn't seem, you'll notice, that this guy is interested in Jesus at the least, the one who healed him. This is shocking. And in verse 11, if you'll notice, the heal man is confronted now by the religious leaders for carrying his bedroll on the Sabbath. Remember, this guy is a fixture in the city. And it seems like he's rather eager to to throw Jesus under the bus, so to speak. Do you notice that? He says to the Jewish leaders who confront him about the Sabbath, the man who healed me, notice the emphasis in the text, that man, you get the idea? That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So he's throwing Jesus under the bus. It's his fault. Isn't that (laughs) jaw-dropping? Isn't it astonishing that he has not even the smallest hint of appreciation or gratitude to Jesus for healing him? John wants us to rest in that dissonance. This man, even though miraculously healed, even though sought out by Jesus and invited to embrace true, whole, holistic faith, is simply not interested at the least. How is that possible? He's not only not interested in placing his faith in Jesus, but f- or following Jesus. Notice verse 15 if you're following along. I hope you are. He actually ingratiates himself in kind of a tattletale way to the religious authorities. John wants us to rest in this. Like, wow. He is ungrateful and uninterested and he embodies what we call a faulty, opportunistic faith. His heart is set on getting religious benefits from Jesus. Anything that might bring him benefits, in this case, physical healing, but he is not interested at all in a relationship with Jesus. Do you see that? In other words, hear me carefully, the healed man is more than willing to receive from Jesus and not receive Jesus himself. The lame man's lame response speaks to each of us this morning a really important truth a warning and that is our faith is misguided when religious benefits are more important than a relationship with Jesus isn't it easy for all of us it is for me to embrace a misguided religious faith founded on sort of a religious consumer mentality christian faith is desirable as long as it's helpful to me right For example, it's desirable when it helps me make friendships, or the religious service I participate in provides a good feeling or a sense of joy. It may be seen as desirable when it gives us great business contacts, or helps our kids or teenagers make better choices, or we make better friends. Now hear me carefully. Making good friends and experiencing authentic community are good things, often really good things. That are the outworking of authentic faith. For example, asking our Heavenly Father for the desires of our heart and for things we need is a good thing. We're invited to do that when done with the right motives. But sometimes fair weather faith proves shallow when life is really hard. And life will be hard as a follower of Jesus. That is, when we face suffering, when we experience rejection when we're hurt from other Christians, when our prayers seem to go unanswered? How does our faith hold up when life has us really down? How do we respond to that? Are we quick to throw in the towel of our faith? Do we become unbelieving cynics that are so common today? So let me ask you to take some time for reflection this week. And maybe ask yourself this probing question. I'm going to encourage you to use your Form.life journal for this. What is my true motive for my Christian faith? Take some time to press into that. Is my true heart motive for faith, first and foremost, knowing and being known by Jesus in deeper intimacy? Do I want Jesus first and foremost, or what he offers? Am I experiencing the manifest presence of Jesus in my Monday life where I live, play, and work? Is God more of a cosmic vending machine that I want stuff from rather than a heavenly father I long to know more fully see John reminds us here of faulty misguided faith first a faulty misguided faith when religious benefits are much more important than a relationship with Jesus but notice the second truth that is when misguided faith takes us where religious rules are more important than a relationship with Jesus. This is the inconvenient truth we see embodied in the second response by these religious leaders in their reaction to this healing, okay? John showcases for us in verses 10 through 16 how these religious folks, I don't know how to say it, come completely uncorked and unglued. And remember, this guy is a fixture in Jerusalem, so it doesn't take him long to be seen in public. He's carrying his bed mat over his shoulder as he walks through the old city of Jerusalem. So the religious leaders confront him immediately and intensely. Now think, a moment, think for a moment what is happening here. You would imagine any person of goodwill, even, let alone religious or irreligious, to be rejoicing with this guy who's got healed. Someone who's had use of his limbs after 38 years he hasn't. Instead of focusing on his healed limbs, they focus on what is being carried in his hands. But also notice, John says, and gives us this hymn, this heel man is also not a very stellar dude. Quickly, the heel man passes the buck and says again, that man is the problem. He forced me to carry my mat. So let's look at what is going on. The pivot of this text, the literary hinge is verse nine. It is the Sabbath day. So whether you've read the Bible a lot or been in church a lot or you're newer to faith, what is this big deal about the Sabbath day? Let's unpack that just a moment. Perhaps that word means little to you. You may have heard of people who do different things on Sunday or one day a week, or you've had strong Jewish friends who have a Sabbath meal or so forth. But the Sabbath is a Hebrew word that simply means rest. That's the idea. It is actually built into the very fabric of original creation in Genesis, the book of Genesis the very first book of the Bible. And after original creation, before sin and death entered the world and disintegrated God's world, God rested on the seventh day. So the importance of six days of work, one day of rest, was anchored not only in the gracious rhythms of original creation, but it is strongly reinforced in the giving of the ten words or the ten commandments in Exodus. The fourth commandment highlighted the seventh day. Let me just remind you of that remember the sabbath day to keep it holy that means to set it apart as unique six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is a sabbath rest to the lord your god on it you shall do no work okay so an essential part of the sabbath day was to rest and not to work so these religious leaders really got something important right in the story the sabbath was important The problem was that God's covenant people lost sight of the big picture of the Sabbath and corrupted it. They made Sabbath about adherence to a bunch of soul-suffocating religious rules to the point of virtual absurdity. Now, there's lots of commentary. The Hebrew writers and Greek writers call the Mishnah, the main Hebrew writers, and they give a commentary on the Sabbath. To give you just an idea how absurd this is, is that the rules of that day, and this fits into the story, you, couldn't, you could carry something in your house, but you couldn't carry it in public. Okay, Anything. So you get an idea. So again, the, the guy carrying his mat was forbidden because it was in public. Make get you know how absurd that is from our standpoint. Instead of pursuing the Sabbath as pointing a relationship to God, it becomes this soul-suffocating yoke of works righteousness to merit favor with God. Now think about this. Rather than a day of delight... Sabbath delight, restful delight, it became every week 24 hours of prideful, self-righteous, nitpicky drudgery. They lost sight of the forest for the trees, so to speak, right? And the Sabbath became a human-centered end in itself. Now here we see something really important. Sabbath here and related religious uh, rules that our picture of this became blindingly ultimate and idolatrous. One of the most dangerous idolatries we face in life is an idolatry of religiosity. Here we have this great danger of misguided faith. That is when religious systems and human human, man-made religious rules make claims of some kind of special enlightenment actually become blinding forms of idolatry and this is what's happening in our story and we will see this throughout the gospel of John religious idolatry rejects Jesus and will eventually nail Jesus to a cross and G, uh, John points out here in chapter 5 that the bless you that the idolatrous Sabbath is the turning point of the religious leaders the turning point in the whole book right here is the hinge and they come unhinged With blinded eyes and hardened hearts, they now fully reject Jesus, quote, as a Sabbath breaker. And for the claims that he claims to be deity and having the privilege to do so. So they cling to their idolatrous Sabbath rules. They not only persecute Jesus, but they will plot to kill him. And this is the hinge in the whole book. Remember with me, if you were part of the earlier part of our series, in John's prologue in chapter 1, John tells us that Jesus, the eternal Logos, the Word made flesh, will be unthinkably and unimaginably rejected by his own people. John says in chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus came, the Logos came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So here, with literary brilliance, John's storyline connects the historical and theological dots that validate this early assertion. It's important for us to grasp that the Sabbath was never instituted by God to be merely another rule for God's people to keep. Rather, it was a gracious gift embedded in creation and affirmed in redemption for God's people to gain an appetizer of the future that awaited them. The Sabbath rests in the new heavens and new earth. So in many ways, as you look at the whole biblical text from Genesis to Revelation, the Sabbath can be a beautiful and gracious thread of narrative continuity connecting the entire story of the Bible. And building into our lives each day or each week, one day of week, is an important rhythm for our spiritual formation and well-being. For many of us, that will be Sunday. Let me just say a couple words about that. I would encourage you, not in any legalistic way or meritorious way, but to build a Sabbath rhythm in your life. And one of the ways you can build in that is to minimize your screen time. Push your work emails away from that day, right? And put your life in the path of beauty, whether it's nature or music. There's much more we could say about that. But the Sabbath principle is still a profoundly formative principle in your life. Now, we may be quick to, you know, point judgmental fingers at these religious leaders. How could someone be so blind but we can get off track too, can't we? There are a few things more perilous to your life and mine. few things that get us more off track than misguided faith. And that is when religious rules hinder our relationship with God. It's very easy, isn't it, for us to look at these religious leaders steeped in their traditions and be simply dumbfounded how they can be so blind. Isn't that true? When you read this, how is it possible For a decent human being not to rejoice in this man's healing, but instead be infuriated at Jesus for breaking the Sabbath and wanting to kill him for it. But let me ask each one of us this morning, are there religious traditions, religious rules, religious preferences or particular religious liturgies that become deceptive, idolatrous substitutes for pursuing the primacy of deeper intimacy with Jesus in your life. See, even the best things, even great things can become idolatrous things if they're ultimate. The Apostle Paul, let's not forget the Apostle Paul who actually killed Christians out of misguided religious devotion, writes these words, which I think he has us in mind to the Corinthian church, about the ever-present danger of deceptive religious blindness built on excessive certainty. And we talk a lot about the peril of willful doubt in faith, and that can be perilous. But equally perilous, if not more, is excessive certainty about what we know we know. the Apostle Paul puts it this way to the Corinthians. He says, I'm afraid for you, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so you should be led astray, your thoughts should be led astray, from a simple and pure devotion to Jesus. And he's not saying a simplistic, a simple and pure devotion to Jesus. So, what about us? Is our devoted religiosity blinding us? That is, from pursuing a simple and pure devotion to Jesus every day. Now, a growing biblical literacy is vital for our spiritual formation, but it is very possible for each of us to have tucked a great deal of Bible information and theological truths in our brains and yet have hearts far, 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 far from Jesus. It's one of the greatest perils of the Christian life. And it's built around a blinded, misguided religious devotion, around a systematic theology maybe or a denominational tribe, This blinding myth of certainty often becomes a very self-righteous, prideful barrier to our own need for increasing spiritual formation and Christ-likeness and for loving others. Yes, even others. See, we don't necessarily agree with them. Loving others like Jesus wants us to love them, even those who may see doctrine different than us. Is the greatest desire and focus of my life of your life this week, today, pursuing a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus? Or have you embraced a misguided faith? So would you take a step back for just a moment with me and consider your own life this morning, wherever you are. Where are you at heart level? Have you bought into a misguided faith? that really is motivated by religious benefits or some kind of meritorious religious rules instead of a growing intimacy with Jesus. And one of the ways we avoid a misguided, faulty faith is to experience true Sabbath rest in Jesus. Are you experiencing true Sabbath rest in Jesus? See, Sabbath is not first and foremost a day we set aside each week. As good as that is, and life-giving as that is, but it is first and foremost a person we know and we are deeply known by. The Sabbath from creation on ultimately points us to the person, the person of Jesus, who is Lord Sabbath, Lord of the Sabbath. The New Testament writer of Hebrews, you might look at chapter four this week if you want to reflect on the fullness of this, points us to Jesus as our Sabbath rest. It is only in him we find true Sabbath. Not only our Sabbath rest, but Jesus' Sabbath rest, friends, can bring healing to those we love so much that are so broken and in such need of wholeness. Because of his atoning death on the cross, his death-defying resurrection, true Sabbath rest can be experienced. A joy-filled, intimate relationship with Jesus where you and I are fully known and known fully and know him fully in a deeper intimacy that brings wholeness to our broken lives. This is the truth of the goodness of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus who communicates to us the forgiveness of our sin and invites us through faith into his brand new kingdom, a life now and forever in the new heavens and new earth. As Jesus your Sabbath rest? Have you embraced him as your personal Lord and Savior? Have you entered his yoke of Sabbath rest as his apprentices? And as you do that, you learn from him how to live your life like Jesus would if he were you. May we in the power of the Holy Spirit recognize the grave peril of misguided faith. And may we instead, each of us, enter his true rest. Let's pray. Your heads bowed and your eyes closed, hear Jesus' invitation to true rest. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Sabbath rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For Jesus says, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Have you responded to Jesus' invitation? His great invitation of intimacy with Him and true rest. True wholeness now, and yes, ultimately in the new heavens and earth. Jesus, you are the author of rest. May we find true rest in you. True Sabbath rest. Amen.